So I'm going to pray, and um, we're doing a series for the month of January, and we'll get back into the Gospel of Mark, and we're just talking about idolatry in our city. And that's what we called it, money, sex, power, and the gospel. Um, we think these are a couple idols, a couple things that our city wrestles with, um, and we want to talk about them biblically. So I'm going to pray, and we'll kind of get into this. God, thank you for this group of people. I thank you for how you've gathered us. I thank you for um, their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. You speak to me. Father, I pray that we would find satisfaction in you and you alone. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Convict us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it, when it comes to Kelowna, we live in a very interesting city, don't we? Remember first week in Kelowna as that third space coffee shop, um, and someone was doing a deal for tens of millions of dollars. And I was like, whoa, I'm not in Salmon Arm anymore. <laughs> right? Like we have this potential in Kelowna for... for so much flourishing, it's kind of insane. Like you can drive from Rutland to Upper Mission to see um, a famous hockey player's house to beautiful wineries, which are ranked in the world as top wineries. Like there is so much potential in Kelowna, but there's also so much idolatry here that when people come and visit me, especially in the summer, they say, do you ever feel like you're not enough, that there's so much materialism in Kelowna that I, just, I struggle with just even being here for a few weeks. It's like if you went to Hawaii for a few weeks and stayed only in, in Wailea, where I love to go on Maui, it's like the most bougie spot of, of Maui, right? But if you stay in Kihei, it's like you're a local. But same with Kelowna. If, you're from, if you move into Kelowna, if you come to Kelowna as a holiday, what do you see downtown? You see in expensive coffee shops, and you see like Lambos and, and Ferraris. That's what people see when they come here. They don't see the other things that we see when we live here in Kelowna, right? That's why people struggle with materialism when it comes to Kelowna. But there, we have a statement on our website as one of our values. And it says, a city, Kelowna, has the potential for human flourishing and human idolatry. We Live Free Church, ministers using the gospel to both, re both redeem and restore the culture that we live in. You see, our culture values things, that we value things, good things, that become the ultimate things in our lives. But it makes me ask this question this past week, what, is I, what do I value? <laughs> right? What do you value? Maybe you don't even know what you value. You know what you, know what you can do if you want to figure out what you value is ask your wife, your spouse, ask your kids, Ask your mom or your dad and say, hey, what do you think I value, right? Like, that's a great, great statement. Sometimes one person said to me, if you want what you value, just take your bank balance and just print it out for the month and just see commonalities, similarities of what do you value. Maybe it's you value a good cup of coffee. Maybe it's you value friendship. Maybe it's like dinner out with people. Maybe, I don't know what you value. Maybe it's Amazon. Um, on that list, it's just like constant Amazon orders, um, that has been me in the past. But for us, what do you value? I think especially as a church that's quite young, it asks the question, what do we value? I saw this article a couple of years ago talking about the values. There's a woman named Barani Ware, an Australian palliative nurse, who spent years taking care of dying people in the last three months of their lives. When questioned about regrets, they had, she asked, what do you regret? And again and again and again, there were some similarities that popped up 
as a palliative nurse, is asking these questions, what do you regret? What are like, the regrets of your life? So she eventually put a list of the five most common regrets that people, when they're in their last moments of their life, have. And it went viral on The Guardian, The Daily Mail, among other websites. But it's interesting, what are the greatest regrets that she heard from patients after patient after patient after patient? It wasn't, I didn't make enough money or didn't work enough hours, not enough vacations, not enough homes, not enough cars. It was none of that. A better phone. Here's the top five things of, regret, of regrets of dying people. Number one, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had let myself be happier. You see, it's interesting as I pondered this, this list this past week, you know what wasn't on this list? Money. <laughs> We're talking about this in a second here, but why isn't money on that list? None of those dying people, the, no, the, the commonalities, the similarities wasn't like, I'm so happy that I had X amount of money in my bank account. Because here's the thing about, about us, right? That we come into this world with nothing, we leave this world with nothing. I think when you're at the end of your life, you feel that. Whether you're Christian or not, you will be influenced by money. That we all have one thing in common, that we are constantly influenced by money. Like, well, how many times, when I look at my life, how many times I look at my bank balance? It's like the notifications on my phone. <laughs> That's my bank balance. It's like, okay, what bills came out today? If I'm honest, I look at it all the time. Like, why am I influenced by this, this thing that has so much potential for good in our culture and our world called money? You see, there's something, there's so much potential for blessing in this church, in this city called money, but also there's such a destructive power to it if we're not aware of it. See, what we do with our money really matters. Whether or not you make 10000 or 100000 it really speaks a lot to, about ourselves, about what do we value? What do we hold dear when it comes to money? I'm looking at a passage today, if your Bibles, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6. And we're talking about two things about money. As in this series, I'm speaking this week, and Dave's speaking next week, and Levi's speaking the week after that, so we'll kind of get some fresh voices in this pulpit. But today I want to talk about two things in regards to money. One is how money traps us and how to get out of that trap. And here's this passage of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says here, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, moving down the passage, there's a lot, I could just preach on that section, but we're going to move down. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, it says here, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of what is truly life. You see, I think as a church in Kelowna, if we're going to be a, a community that's shaped by the gospel, people who are, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we, our attitudes towards money needs to change. Our attitudes towards money needs to change in a very profound way that whether or not you have a little bit of money or a lot of money, our attitude towards money matters so deeply about us. But really the heart of this passage in the first section is talking about how money often is a trap. You see verse 9 and 10, very famous verses. And one of these verses gets taken out of context all the time. It says, but those who want to, want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Right? It's a very interesting passage that this passage is quoted all the time by churches, all the time by people. And really so often, haven't you heard that the love of money is the root of all evil? I've heard that over and over and over again of all churches. But that's not what it says. Right? It says money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Right? The love of an inordinate amount of money, of more money. If I just had this one thing, I'd be satisfied, truly satisfied in myself. You see, the Bible says a lot of things, a lot of positive things about money, about wealth, about material possessions. See, the Bible does not take part in a philosophy that says the body is bad, material is bad, the spirit is good. It doesn't say that actually God made the body and the soul. God made the material world. It's a good thing. It's how we deal with it, how we think about it, how we ponder it, how do we hold it. That's what matters about us. See, to enjoy material comforts and material possessions is a good thing, a great thing. A great cup of coffee. That's why we serve people Chemexes in the lobby because we believe that coffee is meant to be enjoyed. Like to see Dave at a third space to go, oh my goodness, look at the notes of this amazing cup of coffee. It smells like cherry, tastes like cherry. That's not me. <laughs> but some people just enjoy simple things like that, a cup of coffee or a great cup of glass of scotch or a great beer whatever it is, to enjoy a great meal out at a restaurant. I love a great creme brulee. The small things. See, the Bible doesn't say that the body is bad, material is bad, and the spirit is good. It says all these things are created by God. They're good things, but it's how we steward them, how we hold them. See, in verse 18, it says, the rich are not... I'm not told here to stop being rich. That actually, when you look at like, there's a website that, that ranks every single person on how rich you are in terms of North America, in terms of the world. And you can actually like put in your salary and you can like rank yourself. It's called the globalrichlist.com. And uh, it's kind of interesting to put your salary in there and see that you are like in the top 
2% of the world. <laughs> but I think actually when you scale it down, it's like if you make over $10,000 a year, you're in the top 2%. I don't feel like that here. But when you step out into the global aspect of the world, people live on a lot less. I know it's like impossible to live in Kelowna on $10,000. I'm not saying you do that. But I'm saying is, Paul here is saying that the rich are not told to stop being rich. They're told to be rich in good deeds, to be rich in their love, to be rich in the way they bless people, love people, to be rich in buying someone a meal or a cup of coffee, to be rich in good deeds. That's what he's saying. But there's a warning that if you want to get rich, if you have a desire for money, if you love money, whether you have it or don't have it, the love of money is a trap. It's not just having riches, but the desire for it. I remember once, years and years and years ago, um, we had a friend of ours who was, who was dating someone who was a multi-billionaire, and they flew us down to California, and um, a friend of mine said, this person had a really expensive Porsche in their garage. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. How expensive is this Porsche? And it's like, it's like $280,000. And I was like, okay. And so I was working at an organization called Youth for Christ back then. So I'm raising support, just like Arena raises support. And um, we went down there, and I'm, I'm sheepishly asking this guy for support after the fact that he opened his garage, and he had a 360 Spider Ferrari in there. And his wife says, I'm going to buy one matching in gray. It was a red Ferrari. So we sat down around the table and I said, hey, like I, I'm working for Christ and um, I would love if you guys would just monthly support us, just even a little bit, even if it's $10, 20 30 whatever. And this guy living in a Malibu beach house next to Dick Clark when he's still alive said, I have no cash, zero dollars to give you. If I had $10, I'd take you up to Starbucks. <laughs> I was like, what? You see, whether or not you have $1,000 in your bank account or $100 million, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a trap. The Greek word here for trap really is a, a specific type of trap that they would have understood in this context. That really the, the trap is, is like a, uh, a noose that they'd use to trap birds. And so when birds would fly into it, they pull it and the, the bird would be captured in this little noose. And they grabbed them and usually the trap was hidden so the bird couldn't see it as it flew into it. So what Paul's trying to say here is that the love of money is like a trap that you're not even aware of until you fly into it. That, that so often that you actually don't even see who you're becoming because you're so often loving money. It happens so subtly, doesn't it? Like, if I'm being super honest, when I get a scratch ticket at Christmas, then I'm like, oh my goodness, it'd be so amazing to get set for life. Because <laughs> my mom buys those for me for Christmas, my stocking. But for some people, maybe it's cryptocurrency or maybe it's an investment they made to say, if this did this, it would never be enough. That's what Paul's saying here. It's a trap. 
when you put this together with the word foolish, what you're saying is, is the word, the Hebrew biblical idea for fool is someone who is wise in their own eyes. It's like there's a trap that you can't see, but the, the trap is showing you that you're actually a fool in your own eyes because the, the things that you, ma- that you think matters, money, will not matter one day. All those people who are dying, none of them said, man, I wish I made more money. Because at the end of your life, it doesn't matter. In the midst of our moments right now, it feels like it really matters. See, money can blind us to the reality, distort your understanding of reality, a serious, soul-destroying way. But here's a question for us is, how do we find our way out of this trap for money? And Paul kind of makes it really clear. There's kind of three things. One is contentment, it's grace, it's simplicity. See, he says here in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. See, the word gain here really means wealth, that there's a mega wealth you could have in your life when you are content. It's the ability to be happy regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstance. That's the real wealth in your life. It's not happening out there in the world. It's not happening in your bank balance. It's not happening to cryptocurrency when it, when it crashes or the stock markets. It doesn't matter because you have contentment in here with Jesus. You see, you can have inner peace because it's not based on those circumstances. It's based on what Christ has done. There's a pastor I follow online, and, and he wrote the most successful book of all time, next to the Bible. It's been purchased 55 million times. Um, this guy is remarkably successful. He lives in Orange County, and um, he has a really massive church, and he drives a 1995 Ford Ranger, right? And so he lives in a spot in Orange County, which is like the uber rich and wealthy, and he's driving to work, and someone saw him, and they said, hey, our pastor is driving a 1995 Ford Ranger. It looks like it's going to break down the side of like the I-5 on, in California, in L.A. So they call up the board and say, hey, here's the deal. Our pastor needs to get a raise. You're not paying him enough. <laughs> Give him more money. He's driving a 1995 Ford Ranger. We're more of like a Lexus kind of community and BMW community. Like we need to give him a raise. The board went to him and said, hey, um, some people in our church are commenting when you're driving around Orange County in Irvine that your car is not nice enough. He goes, but I love my truck. (laughs) I love my 1995 Ford Ranger. It's amazing. I don't want to buy a different car. So he started calling people at his church who complained and said, hey, here's the deal. He actually told us in front of his whole church, he says, you have a problem with the way I drive my vehicle around town. It might not look like the, the nicest car or truck. It's not like the nice Cummings diesel. It's not like the fancy uh, Tundra in the parking lot, but it's my truck and I love it. I love being inside of it. I love picking up people for coffee in it. Can you just not judge me for my 1995 Ford Ranger? <laughs> you see, that's contentment. Contentment is writing be super successful, but be content with what you have. This pastor realized that it doesn't matter how much money he has, he actually reversed tithe. He said, wow, when he started becoming a successful author and sold 55 million copies of his book, he's like, actually, I can't just give 10%, I'm going to give 95% away and reverse it. Because he's like, I can't have this money. It's going to destroy me. Because no matter what, it's never going to be enough. Enough. 
You see, contentment's the first thing. The second thing is grace. You gotta understand that that grace is that when you come to Christ, you can never achieve it, but you freely receive it. We say this all the time in our church. But you have to understand that and drill that into your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to make it real to you until the contentment grows in you, that God, you are enough for me. So often when I, when I journal, when I write in the morning, often I say, God, you are enough. Because I hope to be honest, when I wake up in the morning, there's a million things to do. And it's so easy to remind myself that, that I need more than what God can provide, which is idolatry. See, it says here in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And verse 7 moves on, it says here, but for we brought nothing to this world and you take nothing out of it. What, what Paul is really referring to was an account in Job that Job had a horrible and tragic series of events which really all his children were killed. He lost everything. All his wealth was taken away. In the face of unbelievable suffering, Job stands up. And what does he say to God? He says, Naked I came into the world and naked I go out. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, that's what Paul's talking about, that, that, that there is nakedness in our life. That the nakedness in the, in the Bible isn't just about not having clothes on. It's about vulnerability. It's about defenseless, defenselessness. What he's saying here is you come into this world naked, a little baby who's utterly defenseless, utterly helpless, utterly vulnerable. And as an old person, as they're dying, they're, they're every bit as helpless and defenseless and as vulnerable. And nothing we can do can change that. But how often, what do we do to, between when we're born and when we die, what do we try to do with that vulnerability, that nakedness that we kind of are faced with sometimes, the vulnerability, the shame? How do we try to cover it? Maybe it's by possessions. Maybe it's by investments. Maybe it's by making more money, working longer hours. I don't know what it is for you, but so often a lot of it's attached to money. The first thing about combating money as a trap really is, is contentment. The second thing is grace. The third thing is simplicity. You know, in our culture, minimalism is a big deal right now. That people all want to be minimalists. But see, we don't give away money because we're scared. We realize that money becomes a tool. It's no longer your security, your salvation. You see in verse 8, it says here, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. So you look at verse 8, what it's saying here is, it's not saying is, if you're a Christian, you should live in voluntary poverty. He's not saying that. He's saying here is, if you are rich, which I think all of us in this room are pretty well off in terms of the world, it's how do you treat people with your money? How do you value it? How do you steward it? How do you hold it? How do you spend it? Matters. I remember this one pastor said this really profound thing that hit me years ago. It said here is that every single purchase is a declaration of what we value. Like a lot of my purchases are great declarations of what I value. 
But I believe so often, we look at verse 8 and verse 18, that money's a trap, but be rich in good deeds. Really, I believe that no matter where you are at, social, economically, you can never let the luxuries become the necessities of your life. That you're always content with where you're at. You're always content with what you have. I've followed someone into this thing where every year they do, it's called like a Swedish death cleanse. Have you, have you ever heard this? No, it's kind of a weird thing. I Googled it because I'm like, what the heck is that? And all it is is you go through everything you own your house. And they say so often in North America specifically when people die, they leave so much junk to their, their kids and family members. It takes a long time to sort through that. And so in Sweden, people will go through and they'll just like do a death cleaning every year in January. Go through all the little things like how many shirts do you need? How many pants do you need? How many, like, I look at my bins in my garage, and I'm like, what are even in those bins? I have no idea. <laughs> we all have things like that in our lives, but can we be content with the things we have now? Doesn't mean that we won't appreciate a great, maybe a new car one day, or a great espresso machine, or a cup of coffee, or a new pair of jeans, but saying is, right now, I'm content with what I have currently. That nothing else that comes into my life will bring me satisfaction or, or salvation, but only Christ can bring that. See, I think realizing that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and the way out of that trap is being content, and I think so often it's so easy to not be content. It's so easy to forget about God's grace. It's so easy to think we can actually achieve it, and not just receive it. It's hard to live a life of simplicity, appreciating the things that we currently have. Like, why am I on Amazon again, buying more shirts that I don't need? Why am I buying a bidet, which I just bought from another bathroom? <laughs> because I need it. You see, I think for me, I would love to live this year content full of God's grace, living a life of simplicity, to be rich in grace, to be full of good works, rich in good works, financially loving people, the way I host people in my home, the way I buy people a cup of coffee, the way I love people through buying gifts. Could we as a church be rich in good works? Could you be rich in good works? Be generous and willing to share. See, as a church, let's do that this year. Let's share with people. Let's be generous people. Not because we're afraid that God's going to punish us if we don't, because God loves us so freely. It changes all the little declarations, all the ways we think that our possessions will fulfill us. Thanks for listening today. Please subscribe to our podcast. Share with your friends. We would love for you to join our movement. All you have to do is go to livefree.church to join us.